Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the Word of God. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still remains, still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Let's pray together. Lord, as we unveil your word, speak to us, reveal yourself, show us Christ. Be glorified in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We're about to embark on our further progress in Hebrews, going to Hebrews chapter 9. Lord willing, we'll be getting there very soon. But I've had some feedback that the uh, time when we tried to uh, summarize some of the 40 sermons so far in this series was actually very, very helpful. And I'd like to do more of that today. Hebrews is such an amazing book, of course, inspired every word by the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 1, we see Jesus as God the Son. In many ways and in diverse ways, God had spoken in the Old Testament period, but now He has spoken finally in His Son. And the message is this. This is on on a whole new level. This is the message. Miss Him and you've missed everything. And uh, Hebrews chapter 1 is all about the deity of Christ. Hebrews chapter 2 is about the humanity of Christ. And we need to have that balance. Jesus is not half God, half man. He's truly God. True, truly man. All that God is as God, Jesus is. And all that man is, Jesus is. He is now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his people. Now, there are bits of information in the New Testament about the high priestly ministry of Jesus, but there's not too much. In fact, uh, it's hard to find verses on that. Uh, John chapter 17 describes Jesus praying what is called the high priestly prayer, (coughs) as found in John chapter 17. But that was before his death. And it's only Hebrews 7 and 8 and 9 and 5 and 6 and all through the book that tells us the high priestly ministry of Jesus, what it's doing for us now. Without Hebrews, we'd be in the dark as to what Jesus is doing. He's doing a lot. He's praying for you. And the great news is God the Father always hears the prayers of His Son. And His prayers for you are that you not only make it but thrive Not that you squeak into heaven and all of the angels say, boy, we were worried. Uh, Wow, they made it. No, uh, if there was any chance of you being lost in the process between this life, death, and glorification, Jesus would have beamed you up. He would have taken you out of this world. But he's left you in this world because he knows the full value of his redemption and his intercession for you. Thank God for that. Hebrews chapter 3 is an amazing chapter dealing with the fact Jesus is not only greater than angels, but greater than Moses. And again, in the context of Israel, this would have been alarming and startling. But what an encouragement 
to these Jewish Christians who were pretty much a, a small huddled group and not in power. And the synagogue was the place of all authority in the neighborhood. And they were excluded from it if they declared Jesus to be the Messiah. They lost out on much in this world. And so the emphasis of Hebrews is Jesus may not look like he's reigning, but he's reigning now. One day you're going to see him and everything is going to be in his hands. He's the heir of all things. This is not just a little message we're trying to encourage people with. We have a kind of Jeep club. We like Jeeps and you're in it and therefore, you know, stay with us because we love your membership. No, this is cosmic power. This is cosmic authority. And though Nero, it doesn't matter who's in charge, seemingly, Jesus is the true king and one day everyone will bow their knee to him. This is the message. You don't see that yet. It looks like nothing in this world is yours. You've suffered the loss of much. It goes on to talk of that in later chapters. But that's the walk of faith. We walk by faith, not by sight, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says. And so we have an entire chapter of our Bibles, Hebrews 11, given over to the subject of faith. You'd understand that knowing that there was not much to look at in this world. For these Jewish Christians. More than that, as we come later to Hebrews 12, we won't go there just now, but the, the amazement of uh, the Christians is that it's not one day you will come to Zion, but you've come there already. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. If you could see what was happening in the spiritual realm, when you came to a church service, you are now being lifted up to heavenly Jerusalem and you're joining a service already in progress. The saints and the angels are already praising Jesus and we join with them on the Lord's day. And it's a vast sea. That's why preachers are very nervous. I mean, what would you think preaching with Moses in the congregation and Mary and Joseph and Peter and Paul and all the saints through the ages? You don't want to mess with them. But more than that, you've come to God and you've come to the Lord Jesus and he's in the service. We're under the gaze of God. And this is the big thing. Though the Christian community was not this big, massive group every Sunday, every Lord's Day, we are part of something that makes the Super Bowl looks like a kid's little play plan. What a blessing. As we come to Hebrews chapter 3, it talks about the rest of God. And we enter into rest not by working for it, but by believing. All that was promised in that rest is relationship with God and well-being and peace. And we who have believed... Hebrews chapter 4 verse 3, have already entered that rest. That's where we find it, in Christ and his full atonement for us. Go to chapter 4 verse 12. As I say, I'm going to highlight some of the verses. And in verse 12 we have very familiar words. For the word of God is living. Literally, the word order in Greek is living, for the word of God is. The emphasis is on the fact that this is a living book. Some people read their Bible and they say they don't get much out of it. Well, uh, 
the, the issue is not what we get out of it, but the fact that this is God's word and we need to pay attention to everything it says. And it is living whether you feel that impact or not. <coughs> it's great when you feel it. It's great when that word penetrates your heart, but it is alive and powerful and there is nothing more authoritative than this word. It's living, it's active, full of energy, energy. Energeo. It's living and active. I was raised in a uh, church that was uh, charismatic in nature, and the idea was that the Bible's a dead book until the Holy Spirit comes upon it. I don't know if you've ever been subject to that strange teaching, but that's what I was brought under. But this one verse refutes that. No, the Bible's not a dead book, it's alive. It's living. There is activity whenever God's word is spoken. And that word will either harden our hearts or it will soften our hearts. It's doing something whenever it's read, whenever it's spoken, whenever it's proclaimed. That's why our attitude towards it represents our attitude to God. John chapter 1 verse 1 tells us that the word is God and it's, it's an expression of him. When you have the word, you know the God of the word. And Hebrews 4 verse 12 tells us that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. While you are reading your Bible, your Bible is reading you. And it's exposing our own thoughts and intentions of the heart. And verse 13 is so interesting. No creature is hidden from his sight. The word of God is a book, and yet it's called his. He. No creature is hidden from his sight. Because this is a revelation of God. This is God's own word. To get the word of God is to get the God of the word, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Every. Uh, recited this uh, recently, but it's so important to be under the Word, to allow this to be our thinking so that in all times, at all times, we're under this. As Christians, we don't put our thoughts above this and say, I know it says something, but I think this, and that's what I'm going to go with. No, we come under the authority of the Word. To be under the authority of the Word is to be under the authority of God. That's it. How do I know the will of God? The Word of God is the will of God. We don't need to go out and have three weeks in some uh, lonely place and seek uh, some kind of experience to know the Word of God. Just simply read the Bible. There are many people that say, well, I know the Bible says this, but I've sought the Lord and I had a word from God. Uh, well, if it wasn't a word from this book, it wasn't a word from God, and we challenge that by what the Word of God says. If God has said something and now you're thinking something else, guess who's wrong? It's not God. It's you. It's me. We have to change our thinking. We need to come under it. Now, the writer goes then to chapter 4, verse 14, and then talks about Jesus as a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold fast to our confession, our saying the same thing. What God says about Jesus, we're to say the same thing about him. 
He is God. He is man. He is truly God. He is truly man. We hold fast that confession in good times and in hard times. But this revelation of Jesus as high priest and the great high priest is staggering. In Old Testament Israel, you were either a priest or you were a king, but no one was able to span both offices. You were either a king or a priest, a priest or a king. But Jesus is the great king-priest in the order of Melchizedek, who was a king and a priest. And his priesthood is superior to that of the Aaronic priesthood. And again, that would make a whole lot of sense to Jewish people. They understood the Aaronic priesthood. It covered everything established by Moses and the tabernacle and the priestly order. So to say, Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek. What the writer does in later chapters, Hebrews 7 especially, Hebrews 8, is to show that everything of Aaron is inferior to that which is of uh, Melchizedek. And that's why you huddled Christians, though the big people in town are excluding you, you have more than them and will have forever. It doesn't look like that. It looks like they're the people in power. But their offerings are defunct. They're obsolete. Jesus is not offering anymore because he has offered one sacrifice to sin, sat down, it's done, fulfilled, in perfection, everything that the law was unable to do. And that's the message. You've got a great high priest who's gone through the heavens. He's achieved everything heaven required of him. He's the Son of God. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence. Don't do that. Hold fast our confession. For this great high priest is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That's because he's fully man. He was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. But one who is in respect, every respect tempted, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, and the word there means boldness of speech, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now when is our time of need? If we understood what our time of need was, we'd understand we're needy all the time. But there are times when it seems that that need is heightened. And if we're all calling upon the Lord at a certain moment, uh, heaven's switchboard would be uh, overwhelmed. Oh, they're all calling at 3.18 in the afternoon. What is this? How we can't handle the calls. No, this one can handle the calls because he's God as well as man. Do you realize this? No prayer has ever been heard by the real Mary. Her felicity, that's a good word, her peace has never been disturbed by earthly troubles. But people pray to her. Why? Because they don't think they can pray directly to God the Father. That's a slander on him. Jesus taught us to pray our Father, which is in heaven, which art in heaven. Or else they won't pray to the Son, because although he's man, he's also God and is a little bit austere. So pray to Mary, because no son can refuse their mother. That's the idea. What a slander on the person of Jesus. And he's the great high priest who's able to sympathize with us. And we can come to him, the Son of God. And we, were, we can come to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help 
in time of need. Hebrews 5 just elaborates this. He's the son of God. He's a priest forever, verse 6, after the order of Melchizedek. And this one has achieved what no earthly priesthood and priest could achieve. Then as we go on in Hebrews 5, there's a strong word against uh, falling into what we call apostasy, uh, being a proclaimer of Christ and then walking away. I believe uh, from both Hebrews and the rest of our Bibles that no true Christian walks away completely. There are true Christians who for a time have gone into what we would call disobedience. I think of Peter. It was not right for him to deny Christ. But guess what? He came back. And why? Because of the prayer of Jesus. Do you remember? Jesus said to him in the Gospel of Luke, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And when you have returned, not if, when you have returned, strengthen your brothers. Well, he denied Christ, but came back because of the intercession of Christ. No such prayer is ever mentioned for Judas who betrayed him. Judas was called a demon. You read John chapter 6, verse 70. And there was no prayer for him. And so the contrast, even though they were apostles, only one was a true believer. And the true believer came back. That's our hope when children go astray, that they truly belong to Christ. And though they may not be walking with the Lord now, they will if they are truly His. Praise the Lord for that. So, warning about apostasy. and you, you, People hear that and they say, well, if someone's a true Christian and they can't ever be lost, why are there warnings? Well, let me ask you a question. That's a Jewish thing to do, though. Answer a question with a question. You ask, how can someone be told not to fall away if they can't really fall away? Well, who's going to listen to the warning? The answer is God's elect people. And God uses these warnings as means to keep his elect people on track. And the rest will be hardened and pay no attention to it, but the elect will hear the warnings. If you're a father and you say to your son, don't stand too near the edge of the mountain. It's not saying that you're going to fall, but watch yourself. And it's right to watch yourself, and if you do, you'll save your life. And it was the father's intention to make sure the son never got so close that that was even an issue. So it is. The people of God are safe in the arms of Jesus by his death, by his life that counted for them in righteousness, and by his present day ministry at the right hand of the father. And it's the book of Hebrews that tells us so much about it. I tried to think this week, what would we lose if we didn't have this book in our Bibles. We'd have a lot that is lost. But we have it. And we have a high priest. And then in chapter 6, as he's gone on to the end of chapter 5, he talks about the fact that you Christians ought to be further along in your Christian life. You ought to be teachers, Hebrews 5.12. But you need someone to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. And we talked about the fact, and we did a sermon on this, that God holds us accountable for our growth. 
And it is a, a, a solemn thing that we grow in the things of God. It's important where we go to church. It's important that we have our own Bibles, that we read it, and that we do not uh, waste our time as Christians. And we are to move on to solid uh, food for the mature. Then Hebrews 6 goes on to talk about six foundational doctrines. Repentance, faith, washings or baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. And the idea here, the picture is that God has a permit for the building. He's inspecting the work on the foundation. And once he sees that the foundation is laid correctly and that these six stones are in place, then he'll issue the permit to allow for greater growth. This we will do if God permits. Then we have a great warning passage from verse 4 onwards. And again, it's very, very possible to be in and around the church, to be used of God even in preaching. I believe uh, Judas was never a true disciple of Christ, but preached for Christ and healed in the name of Christ. He tasted of the powers of the age to come. He tasted all of it, yet turned away. And the message is, don't do it. There's nothing to go back to. Don't do it. But even though he speaks in this harsh way of saying, don't fall off the edge, don't go away, don't reject Christ, even though it would seem good to you on a business level and on a societal level and on an earthly level, don't do it. And now he speaks in these harsh terms. Verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved. Who's that? God's true people. In your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Do you see the balance there? The Word of God is always this balanced word that says the elect will hear it, they'll continue in the faith, but they can also be warned about apostasy. And God uses those warnings to keep His elect on track. And we come on in chapter 6 to talk about the promise made to Abraham Verse 13, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Isn't that true? When you go to a courtroom, don't know if this is still the case, but as I grew up, this was the case in uh, both England and here and many places throughout the world. You lay your hand on the Bible and you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And you do it on a Bible... Because that's of more gravitas, more weight than simply putting your hand on a comic, right? There's a solemnity about this. In other words, I'm going to say the truth before God. You swear by something or someone greater than yourself. That's what we do in our court system. We're so used to it, we don't think that's what we're doing. We're actually saying something before Almighty God. He's watching my every word at this moment. In this court uh, presentation, what I'm going to reply, all the questions you ask, I'm going to tell you the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me, God, with my hand on the Bible. I'm swearing by something greater. Well, what does God do? When he's going to swear to his people that he'll keep them in his word, that he'll keep the promise to him, to them, what does he do? He can't look around the universe and find someone greater. So he says, I'm going to swear by Pluto. No, that's not going to work. I'm going to swear by 
Jupiter. No, I'm going to swear by myself. You know it's going to happen. And so that's the promise. We have not only the word from God, but a sworn oath from God regarding his covenant with us. This actually gets me so excited because it's not based on my feelings on a particular Sunday morning or Tuesday morning or Thursday afternoon. Do you know our emotions have their highs and their lows? And you ask some people how you're doing and it's a different answer on Tuesday morning to Thursday afternoon because circumstances have arisen that are not pleasant and they're going through some stuff. But this is what keeps us in the hard times. God and his word and his sworn oath to us and what Jesus has done and is doing. That's what's keeping us and it's not based on how well I'm doing. How am I doing, God? Well... In one sense, we can always improve in our sanctification, being set apart to God. But you realize your standing with God is unchanging and it's unchangingly perfect. Because you stand in the finished work of Christ, who when he made one offering for sin, sat down because he'd done it all. He didn't say, I've done 88%, the rest is up to you, or 99.8, it's just now up to you. You finished this thing, I've started it. No, he starts and finishes the work, but he's done it all in redemption so that we can sing worthy is the lamp. That's why we don't sing songs about us in any way. It's mostly Jesus that saved me. Try and find that hymn. Yes, let's sing hymn number 437. It's mostly Jesus that saves us. No, but you do find Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. So Hebrews 6 is all about that. I will surely bless you. I'll surely multiply you. God is a covenant-keeping God. And the message is, as we come later to chapter 8, we're now recipients of a new covenant. And it is so beautiful and basic to us that we read it and we don't always grasp it. This is why we took several weeks to go through the New Testament covenant promise. But back to chapter 7. And this is uh, what I started off uh, thinking, this is the hardest thing. I, you know, when, when you talk to fellow pastors and they, uh, they have conversations in reform circles, it's not what topic are you preaching on right now, because you don't do that. You don't just go to topical preaching. You're preaching book by book through the Bible, because that's God's agenda. I like that. There are times when it's right to talk about topics and issues. Absolutely. Go to the scriptures on those things. I do that. But the bread and butter diet of the church, I believe, should be going book by book, verse by verse through the Bible because you then encounter things in the order in which the Holy Spirit inspired them in the text and you deal with things you wouldn't want to deal with. You don't want to try and build a church talking about God's view of marriage and divorce. I try that. Well, people do, and the 80 people become 30 people sometimes. But if you're committed, you want to say, God, I'm going to tell people what your word says and let the sparks fly where they will. You'll build your church. The sheep will love it. The goats will do something else. But I love going through the Bible that way because you then don't miss anything that the Holy Spirit wants his people to know. And it's actually pride on the preacher's part to say, I know more than the Holy Spirit. No, the Holy Spirit has 
inspired Hebrews 1, Hebrews 2. And you don't have to pray about what I preach next week. It's, well, you're in verse 4 this week. It'll be verse 5 next week and onwards. And you get to what God has revealed and all of it, all the counsel of God. And when I talk to pastors and I admit to them I'm preaching through Hebrews, there's this look of knowing. Mm. Okay, I will be praying for you. <laughs> Hebrews 7 is a coming. Try preaching Hebrews 7 in a Western environment. Well, we got through it. We're still alive, praise the Lord. But it is a very Jewish way of thinking, and without that background, it's going to be like, what was that? And so the writer, knowing that the Hebrew Christians would know that, outlined in intricate detail why the Melchizedek priesthood is greater than that of Aaron. And all that you have in front of your eyes, in the town, in the city, in the next town, in the synagogue, is the Aaronic priesthood. And Jesus' priesthood is better. Don't go back to that which was the pro the, only the, the start of what would be the promise coming later. You're now living in the good of the Melchizedek priesthood, where he's king and priest. He's prophet, priest, and king. Hebrews 7, we're not going to jump in there because there's just no way to get in without three or four or more hours. But Hebrews 8, let's go to chapter one, uh, 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we're saying is this. I, I love this because this is great as a preacher. You've been preaching a while by this time and suddenly the preacher says, now, if you don't get anything, get this. That's the kind of message here. The point in what we're saying is this. You might be reading Hebrews 7 and got a little bogged down in chapter uh, 7. Having read those seven chapters, you're excited in chapter 1, still excited chapter 2, but this juggernaut's coming to a screeching halt in, in, in chapter 7, and he's waking us up and saying, okay, okay, now the main point's this. What's the main point? Preachers should remember this. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. That's the main thing. The main thing is we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Not will one day but right now is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. In other words, he's in the place of all authority and his perfect finished work counts for us and we have access to him. We have him. It's not that we're promised him. We have him. It's not that at the end of our lives we'll get him. We have him now. We can call upon him now. He's a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. And we saw this, didn't we? That everything of the earthly was simply a picture of the heavenly reality. The earthly, though it looked more real than the heavenly, the heavenly is more real than the earthly. That's hard for us to grasp because we live on planet earth and we've not been to heaven, not yet. People ask me, do you think when we go to heaven we'll know each other? Well, I said, heaven's a real place. They said, yes, but will we know each other? I said, would, would you and I know each other if we went and met in Dallas? Oh, yeah. Well, Dallas is a real place. Heaven's is a, is a real place. We'll know each other there for sure. It's a real place. And you will be there if you know him. 
if you've believed the wonderful gospel about God, what he's done in human history. What is that gospel? That gospel is the second person of the Trinity was born of a virgin, became incarnate, lived an absolutely flawless life, died an atoning death on the cross and rose again from the dead itself is now at the place of all authority in the universe so that anyone who repents and puts their trust in Jesus Christ is saved, delivered forever, a child of God forever, plus nothing. That's it. And that's the main point. We have such a high priest. We have such a high priest. I think that's the message of Hebrews. Jesus is better and we have him. We have such a high priest. As we continue now reading about the new covenant, God found fault in the old covenant because of the sinfulness of man. He found fault with them, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8, when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, all God's people. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws into their minds and write them. I'll write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And I'll be merciful toward their iniquities and I'll remember their sins no more. In the new covenant, everyone knows the Lord. Everyone has their sins forgiven. Everyone has that assurance. In false religions, the great enemy is something called assurance. There was very, a very uh, prominent Roman Catholic uh, theologian who described the greatest heresy of the Protestants, people like you and me, the doctrine of assurance. It's hard for us to grasp that, especially when there's a Bible verse in 1 John where John says, the reason I've written these things is that you may know that you have eternal life. That's assurance. So I've written this entire book so that you would have assurance. And the Roman Catholic theologian says the greatest heresy is assurance. You know, I'm going with the Bible over the guy. But why would they even say that? They say that because in their system, you can never have assurance because it's the height of pride to say that I've had a revelation that I've done enough to know that should I die this moment, I'm going to heaven. People have been burnt at the stake in history for assurance. I know whom I have believed. I know my sins are forgiven. I know that my Redeemer lives. In a workspace system, when it makes you dependent on the system for this drip, like at a hospital, 
You, you have a drip of water that's coming into your system. There's, there's this drip system that allows you to get something to come into you over a period of time. And that's the system of the Roman Catholic Church that tells us you'll get grace if you keep coming back. There's just enough for the next week or so till the next confession, till the next this, till the next that, till you can uh, commit a sin. And it makes you dependent on the system. Do you see that? It makes you, com you can't get this grace anywhere else. They have a monopoly on grace. You only get grace through their Roman Catholic Church system. And so it makes perfect sense that it's a heresy to think you're assured because you don't need us then. Jesus died to provide not only forgiveness of sin, but assurance of that forgiveness. So that you know that you're saved. How do you know? Again, when you point to yourself and say, well, I did this, that's why I know I'm saved. No, no, no. I'm saved because of the perfect and finished work of someone who did what I couldn't do for myself. And that's why it's not arrogance. That's why it's not pride. It's actually humility to say, you know what? Some days I'm haunted by my sin. Some days I lay awake at night and think, I, I know I shouldn't have done that, but I did. And it hounds you. But I come under the word of God that tells me I've got a, a perfect savior, a great high priest who's finished his work and he tells me my sins are forgiven and I'm coming under that. Oh, thank you, God. That's not pride. That's humility. I'm under the word. I feel like God could have said, I would save you, but a lot's up to, up to you. Do you find that, that verse in your Bible? Under the word, I say, if I went by my feelings, lying here at night, I don't know I'm forgiven, but I've got something much more authoritative to give me the right message. It's the word of God. And it says, whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not because of the strength of my call, but the power of the Savior. John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace, said this, although my memory is fading, two things I remember. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. See, it's not pride to say that, it's humility. He saved me, this undeserving one. I received grace. That's the whole message of grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Mercy is wonderful. Grace is even more wonderful. Mercy says, you should be put to death for your sin. God spares you. That's mercy. Grace is more than that. You're not only spared the justice of God because Christ endured the justice you deserved, but you're given grace so that not only you live, but you come to the king's table and you dine with him forever. You're raised up to a heavenly palace and sit with him in Christ Jesus. That's grace. And the message of grace needs to be thundered loud and clear throughout the land. There's a great high priest who's achieved a great and finished work. 
Christians, we should have the assurance of salvation, not because we've done a whole lot of stuff, but because He did it all. And we've trusted in Him, and He's a perfect Savior. He's never lost one of His. That's what it means to be a good shepherd. A good shepherd doesn't lose a single sheep. He wards off the wolves. He protects and feeds the sheep. He nourishes them, though they go astray. He comes and finds them. He has never, let me give you some information, he has never lost one sheep in all history. John chapter 10 tells us that. Should we finish with that? John chapter 10. I trust it's whetting your appetite for more from Hebrews. So we go to Hebrews 9 the next time. John chapter 10. Hear the words of your Savior. <coughs> Jesus has true sheep. And that means he also has uh, knowledge of those who are not his sheep. He knows his sheep. He knows who are not his sheep. And all of this comes to us in a way that is striking because we think we can choose to become a, a sheep. If I'm not a sheep, I can choose to become a sheep. Uh, no. The reason you choose Jesus, should you have chosen Jesus, is that from all eternity you were a sheep. It's controversial, but it's there in our text. Look at John chapter 10. So the Jews gathered around in verse 24 and said to him, John 10, 24, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, if you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you don't believe. All right, this is obviously evidence of the fact that he's talking to unbelievers. Would you agree? If he says, you don't believe, what is he dealing with? Unbelievers. All right. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because... Now stop, 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 stop. Jesus is about, is about to explain their unbelief. Are you, are you interested in knowing why they don't believe? Here we go. You may not like it. You don't believe because you're not among my sheep. That's the reason. Now in contrast... Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. Now, they may not hear the voice of the shepherd the first time they hear the gospel, but one day they will. God will say on a certain Thursday, that's it, you're coming home today. You're going to hear this, and you're going to love it. You don't believe because you're not my sheep. I used to believe that they weren't Christ's sheep because they didn't believe. That's actually the opposite of what Jesus said. Jesus said, no, the reason you don't believe is you're not my sheep. 
In contrast, my sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. I give them, that means all of them, eternal life. And they, that's all of them, will never perish. And no one will snatch them, any of them, out of my hand. My Father who's given them, all of them, to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them, all of them, out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We're one in this. We're one in missing. The, the Father wills this. I will this. I'm enough to get the job done, but my Father's with me. And that's why we can say, as Paul did in Colossians, our life is hid with Christ in God. I and the Father are one. They understood that he was making a claim to full deity. Just as a worker, as a carpenter, took on the role of their carpentry father, Jesus is making that same claim for himself. My Father's working... And I'm working. We're on the same team. We're in business together. This is Father and Sons Limited, except it's Father and Sons Unlimited. In fact, it's Father and Son Unlimited. They didn't like it, claimed to deity. They picked up stones again to stone him. So what will we do with this message? There's one who'll never lose a true sheep. Isn't that the basis of our assurance? Not my striving. Should we pray? Of course. Should we read our Bible? Of course. Should we tell others about Jesus? Of course. But if you're like most people, we're never ever 100% great at that. Some days, even as a pastor, I get behind in a Bible reading thing. I've studied, I've got the Bible out, but I haven't gone through the yearly thing. Do you know, I don't on those days say, well, I have to come as something other than what I am when I was up to date. I come as a son of my Father in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, even if I'm four days behind. <laughs> we have to catch up. Why not to try and get God to say, okay, I'll, I'll be cool with you now. No, it's for my own spiritual nourishment. It's for my nourishment, not for my relationship with God. My relationship with God was established by someone other than me, the Lord Jesus Christ. Greg Francis, who's now with the Lord, had a statement. I love it. I repeat it often. I'll close with this. God demands 100% perfect obedience to his law. If you can't do that, you better find someone who can do it for you. That person is Jesus Christ. And in his life, he fulfilled the entire law of God. Every demand of the law was met in Christ. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus is the only person who can check that off and say, yeah, I did that all my life. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Check mark. Yeah, always done that. Go through the list of the Ten Commandments. Go through the list of all the law. Jesus could say, check, 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 did it. I fulfilled the law. And when you and I believe, God credits to our account the life of Jesus for us. 
So that we look in God's book and we're expecting to see our sins. And he says, oh no, they're canceled out. You remember, I, I told you your sins are remembered no more. As far as the east is from the west, as far as I, have I removed your transgression? Well, well that's all real. I, there's no record of your sins in heaven's courtroom, in any of the books. But then you not only see a blank page when it's my sin, but then it says the life of John Samson, the life of you as a believer, and it says circumcised at the right time, lived the law, attended every feast. What? I don't remember going to any feast. I've never even been to Israel. You and I get the righteousness of God's perfect Lamb, the Messiah. And it's there in your account. And you stand in the righteousness of Jesus so that this is true of every one of his children. Christ's righteousness is yours now. And it's perfect. You can't grow in it. Can we grow in more intimacy with Christ? You all know, yes. Can we grow in a greater standing with Christ? No. The moment you believe, not only were your sins forgiven, God's perfect righteousness in the person of Jesus Christ was credited to your account. He, God, made him Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. You tell them that, they'll just go out and sin. No, you're giving them a license to sin. No, people sin without a license. <laughs> but I'm telling you what the New Testament says. Should we sin? If we confess our sin, we don't lose our relationship. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. It's not like when we confess, he finds out about it. You did what? He already knew about it. But when we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and just on the basis of Christ and his work for us. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Be grounded in assurance, not to defy Roman Catholic doctrine, but to believe true biblical doctrine. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the Lord Jesus, the wonderful great high priest who's done everything we've ever needed. As we continue on in Hebrews, Lord, give us grace to see what you'll show us there. May we live in the good of what Christ has done and is doing, even now. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.